This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. So what we're going to talk about today is the Jew Tuscanzi people. Is that, is that accord with your pronunciation? I, I'm glad you're pronunciating it and not me because I looked it up. Okay. I there there was I read the word and I'm like, there is no way I am going to be able to pronounce uh, pronounce this correctly. Um but your your pronunciation sounds much better than what I could have come up with. Yeah, I you know, I did a little digging on that. And it's even spelled a whole bunch of different ways. Okay. Yeah. Which makes it harder to find information on them. They that that they have they talk with a lot of like in their native tongue, there's a lot of clicks, discs, you know, yeah. plucks. Did you ever see that movie? The gods must be crazy. I haven't. There was there's uh, sequels to it. I think there might be two or three. I never saw the sequels. I just saw the original in 1980, and so I was only nine years old. Uh, but I I remember thinking it was quite funny, and I remember my parents thinking it was absolutely hysterical. And that's that movie, the tribe that's depicted in that movie it is uh, the Judas Gonzi. Okay. It's like there's a lot of them talking in it and just the noise, the sounds that they, the clicks and stuff that they, that, that in there, when they're talking, it's wild. That, I've heard, I've heard that some of those dialects, some of those languages uh, spoken on, on videos and things like that. And it's, it goes right over my head. It, yeah. It is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine understanding that in a million years. But I can't understand. I can't imagine learning any other language. It just sounds like mush to me. Words in other languages sound like mush. But I think it, within the article, it talks about that too, where they view uh, the European. I think they refer to it as like the European tongue. Uh, as the exact same, They're, they they can't fathom being able to understand and talk the way that the author talks. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the Gods Must Be Crazy, the plot revolves around this Coke bottle that somebody throws out of an airplane, and a tribesman finds it. And they they think that this Coke bottle has tremendous utility, uh, like for cracking nuts and stuff like that. They yeah. just think that this thing is badass. But then, if I remember right, they start to think it's evil, and one of the tribesmen volunteers to take it and throw it off the edge of the earth. So that's like this movie revolves around his journey to the edge of the earth, you know. It's interesting, but, but uh, like, 
there is no edge of the earth even in the movie just to the tribe there is right there's a lot of europeans in the movie you know and so it's like they don't think that there's an edge of the earth but uh yeah but it, 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 i i don't remember a single joke from there but i remember thinking that it was quite quite fun so these these folks are native to the Kalahari Desert in South Africa, in parts of Namibia, Botswana, and Angola. And they've been there continuously, as near as anthropologists can tell, for hundreds of thousands of years. And what we're going to do today is talk about their culture and particularly as it relates to hunting and how very different that culture was. I don't know what, what it's like now. I didn't really dig into it, not what their contemporary culture is like, if it continues to have some fragments of what it was historically or not, but how that their culture relates to modern hunting culture, what we're going to talk about. So I thought I'd start out by talking about them just a tiny bit historically and and how what they what they what their realities were historically has changed a lot in the last 50 years and then we're going to go back to their historical modus operandi um, as presented by a Canadian anthropologist, Richard Lee, that studied them intensely in the in the 60s and 70s. So is that cool? Yep. I, I was wondering if you could clear uh, clarify something where we are is are they a, a nomadic tribe or are they I got the feeling that they're fairly nomadic. Yeah, I I I learned that from what I watched a, a video on them that that uh, they historically they would move around. They would be in a spot and they'd be foraging from that location. As as we both know, like seventy percent of their calories were from roots and tubers and nuts and things like that. And then, but after a time at one location, they'd have to go so far to find more plant matter to eat that it was it would get it infeasible. So then they would move to a new spot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they. They moved around a lot. I think that there was, I read somewhere that within their home range that encompassed part of these three countries, they, there were nine water holes and their life revolved around these nine widely scattered water holes a lot of the time. Maybe not during the wet season when they had other sources of water, but uh it sounds like they had a, a pretty good life uh this is a quote from james sussman who's another anthropologist 
that studied this tribe more recently. And he's writing about them here in the Atlantic Monthly in 2017. And he's talking about Richard Lee, the guy whose study we're going to be most focused on today, what Richard Lee had to say about their lifestyle. Uh, to his surprise, Lee established that the Utisconzi not only managed to feed themselves better than many in the industrialized world, but they did so on the basis of only around two hours of hunting and foraging a day, and cheerily spent the rest of their time on more leisurely pursuits, such as napping, playing games, and making art. That sounds delightful. On the strength of Lee's findings and the growing weight of evidence from similar societies elsewhere, anthropologists started calling have started calling hunter-gatherers, quote, the original affluent society, unquote, and turned the established narrative of social evolution on its head. So I think what he's referring to there, he being Sussman, is that it was historically thought that they had that hunter-gatherer societies just consistently had this brutish existence. But when you go and look and study the remnants of tribes that are still operating as hunter-gatherers, it turns out that they they got it pretty dick a lot of the time, you know. That reminds me of a um of my undergrad studies. I I, I had to take a few anthropology courses in my undergrad and um the professor was talking about meeting um a tribal elder um and and, and talking to them about how how do they spend their time and what are they like how do they value their time and essentially what tribe they, is this i i can't remember the tribe it, it was a a, a hunter gatherer tribe um I don't remember the region. It was a, it, on the continent of Africa, at least. Okay. Okay. Um, and the this elder is is laying under a tree, kind of just relaxing. And the the anthropologist is, is going up to him and say and talking talking to him about um, the importance of you know saving up resources and. Uh, essentially like building up a savings like so much of what we do today is worried about building up savings and planning for the future and so he, he's applying that thought to this tribe and and the el the this elder looked at the anthropologist and said why would i do that uh, and so and, and the anthropologist goes on to mention or to talk about or explain to him you know so you can retire and kick back and and sit down and relax and not worry about anything and the the elder kind of looks around and says i'm doing that right now i you know why would i <laughs> why would i work harder to do what i'm doing now in the future when i can just do that now yeah uh, i i it yeah, sounds in, a, in both these in this article the sussman article he talks a lot about that how they traditionally they had very they didn't stockpile food they didn't, yeah, they didn't, um, weren't worried about the future. Which sounds very nice. Yeah. So, and, and I guess another thing that was surprising was that 
with Lee was that he found that they had all this time for leisure and had it pretty good, even though they live in one of the most hostile hostile environments in the planet, in the Kalahari. So another thing about them was, and we'll have more about to say about this later, is they were highly egalitarian. Um, Sussman writes, uh, the Jew, the Juscons, the Juscon, now I can't pronounce it, the Jutiskanzi, the Jutiskanzi shared their food with one another according to a set of social prescriptions that ensured pretty much everyone, including the young, old, and disabled, got a share. As a result, the Jutiskanzi were also thoroughly egalitarian, mercilessly ribbing anyone that developed delusions of grandeur and seeing no point in accumulating wealth or formalizing systems of exchange. That's kind of what we were saying right there. Um, they also enjoyed giving friends ritualistic gifts called paraxo, but in these cases, it was the implied affection in the act of giving that was important. The gift itself was more often than not soon regifted to someone else. <laughs> so that's just a little bit of them historically before saying what's happened to him in the last 50 years because i want to say what's happened a little bit about what's happened between the time that richard lee studied them and today so richard lee studied them in the 60s and 70s so the sussman writes all this changed very suddenly when larger political and economic forces that rattled south southern africa in the 60s and 70s brought an end to the jew Tuscanzi isolation and with it, their freedom to live as hunter-gatherers. First, the South African government established an administrative presence in, I'm going to slaughter this, but this is like one of their main villages, Sumqui. Uh, then, as part of an apartheid master plan, the government declared a large portion of Nene a game reserve. So that's a big part of their home range in Namibia and thereby prohibited hunting there and denied Jutiskanzi access to two of the only three natural springs they historically depended on in Namibia. These changes made it impossible for the Jutiskanzi to live off the land and they became increasingly dependent on handouts from government officials in Sumquik. So I guess at this time, like this was during the the when there was this battle, the Namibians were trying to gain independence from South Africa, and they enlisted a lot of Jutiskanzi to fight against the the Namibians in parts of, of North Namibia, which is outside of their the Jutiskanzi's native homelands, and then. That went on for a long time, that war, and then it ended in 1990 when Namibia gained its independence from South Africa. Um, and then at that time, a lot of the Jutiskanzi, as near as I can tell, returned to their traditional areas. And a lot of them still live there. A lot of them don't. A lot of them moved on to other areas. But as near as I can tell now, 
like they they tend to still they they live a lot of them live in shanties and the outskirts of larger villages there they there are people that like makes their living kind of hand to mouth a lot of the time doing odd jobs they work on cattle ranches they herd they they um oh they farm some but they is, also as near as i could tell they still do forage some some of them and they still hunt they still hunt uh is there a of that they do i know a lot of a lot of tribes in that area or region so, so to speak have turned turned to relying on exotic hunts and have having people pay tens of thousands of dollars to to go you know hunt hippos or, or elephants and you know things like that does, does any of that take place down there oh yeah oh yeah that I bet Whitey kills a lot more stuff there than the native population. Okay. Yeah, it's big like safari area, hunting area for sure. I I, I would be I, I would be shocked if it didn't, but I I would be surprised, or I, I think it'd be interesting to know or find out what kind of economic reliance they have on people being willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to go hunt down there and, and have them show them where to where all the animals are yeah and i i mean they my understanding is that they are a very small fraction of the people that live there okay and you know a lot i think a lot of that that hunting takes place on private land it's probably owned by europeans yeah you know, and it's the Europeans that are really making the money off of the hunting, be my guess. Um, so, but I'm, yeah, I bet there's some Jude Tisconsies that work for for outfitters and stuff like that. I'd be surprised if that wasn't the case. Um, so what we're going to dive into now, which is the main, now we've laid out this tribe a little bit, is we're going to talk about their their cultural mores as they pertain to hunting and they had really this has to do go has to do a lot with the 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 their egalitarian um perspective they really eschewed bragging that was that was very frowned frowned upon any kind of gloating or bragging about hunting accomplishments and they had a lot of cultural practices that discouraged it and you know just before we got on matt they got me wondering if that was anything like that occurred any of that sentiment was occurred with other other aboriginal tribes i don't think you're supposed to say aboriginal uh i think that that's um like a frowned on word. So like any other hunter gatherer tribes. So uh, I did a little digging real quick. And it certainly was the case that, that Bragan was definitely a no-no with the Eskimos. I, I very quickly found, found several quotes. Um, 
just digging around online. Here's one disrespect evident in neglectful procedure. What they're talking about there is processing game or in waste, wasting or bragging brought repercussions uh, such as game scarcity, accidents, sickness, or death. Uh, so they believe that, yeah, if you if you were a show off, it could portend bad things for you in the future. Here's another quote where they're talking about how a young hunter is trained. Ma uh, many of the stories young hunters listened to as children were stories that emphasized the disp disposition, the attitude of the hunter. And these stories, bragging and pride in personal, uh, in personal accomplishment would be condemned. Um, and then there's a couple more quotes I have about them. Also, I, I looked to, enough to see that with, with many Native American tribes bragging about a hunt, hunting accomplishments were, was, a, was taboo. So did you come across anything like that? Um, not outside of the tribe. Uh, there, there was definitely a lot of thought as to why that practice takes place. And in, in, in within the, the article that we've read, it's, they, they are, they go to almost extreme measures to n knock the, the hunter down a few notches to, to yeah. humble, to, uh, make sure he knows that he's not better than anyone else just because he's he's uh been successful um and and, and there were, there's two things that stand out to me it's the response of the hunter him, himself um who responds with humility who responds doesn't get defensive he he goes along with it um and the other thing is it's it's showing what a society or what a group of people consider to be important. Um, they, they view pride, they view bragging, they view one person being elevated over another person as a really bad thing. As yeah, bad we'll get into the reasons why Yeah, in, in, in just a bit. It goes back to the egalitarianism. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when people counter me on my belief that no good comes from putting dead and dying animals on computers and cell phones for the masses to see, they'll say, well, this is just kind of part of our culture. This is part of our history. Um, look at the, look at the cave paintings, you know, these thought from thousands of years ago that depict hunting scenes. And like, that's just not convincing to me because those paintings will be some archer shooting at an animal or something like that. So that's what it typically is or with a spear, but you don't even know. It could be that it was one of the tribesmen was sick that day and he was making a carving of his uncle. You know, it's not like he's drawing it. You don't know he was doing it to draw attention to his his own accomplishments, you know. 
So I look at this, I'm like, but here's now this isn't fragmentary evidence. This is pretty well established evidence that here's some hunter-gatherer tribe and the Eskimos as well. And then there's some other tribes in Africa, I think. And like I said, Native Americans, that their attitude was not one of celebrating what a badass you are, you know? So, the, yeah, that cave painting defense drives me nuts because of that. Well, they and that's what they were doing. They you don't know that they were bragging. Yeah. Um, and it, it promotes elevating another person over the rest of the group. And I, I don't, I think if you, if you really question people on, are you interested in elevating one person over a group? Would, would they really defend that? Right, right, right. If you took it out of context and just asked that. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. I, I, taking it out of context or putting another, other, Putting in another cost or just make it, yeah, like it's like making it. You're not okay. They'd say, No, I'm not okay with stuff that just elevates one person over. Well, maybe they would. I don't know. What do you mean? Yeah, I think I, I, I definitely think that. I think most people are not going to go along with the idea of I want to elevate one person above myself or above my group of people. Um, I, I don't think most people would support that. I think, but I don't think that re- they that a lot of people realize that that's what they're doing every time they they comment on a picture on Instagram or or send a like on a picture of Instagram. But that's what ends up happening. Um, yeah, we do that a lot. Even outside of hunting, we end up doing that a lot with celebrities, with athletes, with politicians. Um, yeah. So when um, Lee studied them, so uh, he they were they were deriving. We said earlier about thirty percent of their calories from meat, right? Yes, and the rest from foraging for various kinds of tubers and roots and nuts and all kinds of stuff. I'd love to try some of that stuff. They like they show pictures of all this crazy, these crazy fruits and vegetables and that I've never seen before. I just wonder, I'm always curious to try new stuff like that, you know. Um, they're a little bit about their, one other thing before we get into their the culture, I thought it'd be important to say a little bit about their hunting style. Um, so according to Lee, they hunted their hunting weaponry consisted um, of major tools and minor ones. I'm quoting now. The major ones are the bow and the arrow, spear, knife, spring hair hook. I think that's like a hook that they put down on a rabbit burrow and just yank him out. Yeah. And rope snares. That reminds me that that spring hair hook. I was spearfishing with a guy in the Bahamas last year, and he had one of them to stick down in these stone crab burrows. Uh-huh. 
So they, those stone crabs, they live in on grass flats in like six or eight feet of water. I don't know if that's the only place they live, but that's one place they live. And we and we were looking for those burrows, and then uh, and you stick that hook in there and get it behind him, and then yank him out and grab him, and then you get to cut off one of his claws, and then you got to turn him loose. I, I've seen that before. I've, I've seen where it's a it's a pretty sustainable practice since the right. lives regenerates and you can do the same thing with the the same crab yeah and those claws are huge yeah like i mean two or three of those that'd be pretty good meal uh-huh want some side dishes with it but but uh he forgot that hook <laughs> so we had to stick our arms in there and that is that was that was pretty unnerving. That, I got a couple out though. They were so far back that both the ones I got out, I was up to my armpit. You know, and feeling you feel for their shell. You go along the top of the hole and then try to get behind them and scoop them out super quick. You know, and then grab them. And you're just praying that it is a crab and not something else. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that. I don't know if there could be anything much more scary than those crabs, like with the claws on them. Um, I get. Well, I was just praying that I didn't run right into a claw, you know. Yep. So anyway, they, they had these spring hair hooks. Um, they also used digging sticks, um, fire making equipment they carried with them, knives, ropes. Uh, and they, but they, but it, and even when Lee studied them, they didn't have guns. So even in the 60s and 70s, he says that he hung out with 151 hunters in his time there, and only one of them had a gun. Um, and then there was a footnote that. In this, uh, the, so the document we're working out of right now, these documents called it the Dobi Jutiskanzi, and the Dobi is one of their watering holes where he first went and met some of them. But some, like people, have added to this document over time. There was a footnote that said even in 2010, when they hunted, they very rarely hunted with firearms. I, I'd be curious to know their. Not necessarily their reasoning, but their views on on advancing technologies with that. Yeah. Uh, I I would I would bet that they're pretty stealth that they're pretty stealthy and pretty quiet with a bow and arrow and a spear and and they they're probably not looking to blow out the entire valley or area that they're in with a single gunshot. Yeah. Is it a matter of they can't get guns or that they don't want guns? Or do they even need it? Are, yeah, are there yeah, yeah. sufficiently met without it? Yeah, back in the day, that was the case. Like we were saying, they only had to look for food two or three hours a day. So, yeah. It also said this was interesting. I, I wouldn't have guessed this, but they hunt with dogs a lot. Did you see? I do that? remember reading that. Okay, so that's all your the audience is going to learn about. 
them other than these cultural mores they had relating to um, how they handled hunting accomplishment within the tribe. So there's, the section on this is really, in, it's a 193-page report is only what a handful of pages long. It's three pages long. Yeah. And I thought we could read through it and we'll stop and, and comment as we go along. Do you want to read any of it or you want me to do it? I'm happy to, to read uh, any parts you, you'd like me to. You want, let's just read the whole thing from the beginning and you stop when you ever get your, you feel like and we'll chit chat about it a bit. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here that is that displays how very, very different their culture is compared to modern hunting culture. Okay. Well, let, let, uh, let me read a quick ex uh, excerpt out of their um, area, out of the section that focuses on their gathering, and then we can go into the, the meat. Okay. Okay. Their, their, Before their, we go into this, the section we're going to read is called insulting the meat, but you, you got, that's right. You got something else that you wanted to read from elsewhere. Okay. Um, so this is, this is talking about, and I'll skip forward a little bit, but it's talking about them finding a, a, a grove of trees, trees where this specific nut is found that they, um, a large part of their diet consists of this. Um, and I'm going to butcher some of the names. You'll have to forgive me, but, um, we it's sit the on Mongongo nut, right? Yes, yes. Uh, from the we were we were talking before we started recording. It, it's in the it's in the Euphorbia family, same family as Poinsettia, and a weed that I studied when I was in graduate school school called Leafy Spurge, and also Cassava root. Which I don't know if you, any of y'all that are listening have ever, ever eaten cassava or yucca root. And this is not the yucca that grows in U.S. grasslands. This is a different kind of yucca. But it's big black tuber, dark brown black tuber. You can sometimes find it at health food stores. It's really good. I highly recommend it. It tastes a little bit like mashed potato, but it's a lot stickier. I actually like it more than mashed potato. Um, so anyway, there's my point for or yucca. Anyway, so anyway, this, this tree produces these nuts in that same family. So it it go it, what what it says is we stood on top of the dune in the middle of a large grove of mangongo trees that stretched east and west to the horizon. This the, is Lee talking. Yes, the fallen uh, nuts densely covered the ground. This was a fresh grove, unpicked this season. Um. I reckon we were about 10 miles north of the Doby. Without ceremony, the women fanned out and started to pick. Uh, so that grabbed my attention, just that little excerpt. Um, the Without ceremony. Mm -hmm. um, and it made me think, 
what ceremonies we do uh, within hunting. Um, we have deer camp, we have duck camp uh, that are you know, very culturally ingrained into our minds. I, I, I'm sure most of our listeners probably have thought or have memories of duck camp or deer camp. And what, how much of the, how much effort do we put into uh, the ceremony or the ceremonies that go with that go in hunting versus just getting out there and going and, and doing it. Yeah. Um, it. It gets blasted on, onto social media all the time. Um, you have, uh, there, there's companies called duck camp. Mm. There's, there's products that are branded specifically to make deer camp more comfortable things like that it's it, it's interesting to me when you actually get down to it what is needed and what's not needed in order to actually go out hunting yeah these people did it without any hubbub without any hubbub it it, it, it gives me the picture of they just showed up they saw it and they're like all right let's go let's go do what we came out here to do yeah and then Today, I imagine, uh, you know, people from the from the West going out and taking Instagram pictures of themselves picking up the nuts, or <laughs> I've got to get a selfie with my bag. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, gathered. My wife is that way. Holy crap! If we're out mushroom hunting or asparagus picking. It's like I just want to pick i don't want to document but she likes to she likes to document that stuff she's kind of a social media addict um i don't let her take any put any like stuff i shoot on in, on on instagram and maybe that's why she's hyper focused on when we go out and look for berries or asparagus or mushrooms that, that like then she gets to put it on instagram so yeah there's a lot of picture taking that goes on can you imagine saying, all right, we're out here at coordinates X. We found an untouched grove of these Mongongo nuts. Come on out here, everyone, and and, and let's have a good time <laughs> within the day. Yeah. I, I think of it only, uh, you know, morels are kind of the popular thing now, but, you know, Matt, Matt I, I, it's, probably pretty easy to imagine someone saying all right i found this great group of morels here off of route such and such mile marker 12 um that happens all the time really oh yeah i it's, it's Why not people put stuff like that on instagram for the whole world to see their mushroom spot the, their mushroom spot whatever it's it's going it's through very generous it's very generous but it's also it's it's going through it's, it's recognizing what is valued today versus what's valued in other cultures like like what we're talking about it, the the actual mushroom or whatever you're picking whatever you're hunting isn't the value anymore it's how many likes can i get from from this picture that i post from the caption that i create I think you get just as many likes and 
And attaboys, if you said it, hey, showed pictures of your mushrooms and didn't say where they came from. 100%. I think you probably would. And, I, you, I, wouldn't, and you wouldn't burn your spot. Well, I don't, I don't think that some of these influencers think about that. I don't think that's a thought that's, that's brought up, especially when you have people that are willing to travel out of state. You know, let's say I'm, I'm from, it's well known. I'm from Utah. Um, but if I'm going to Montana, um, and I, I know that there's a really good spot out in mile city and I say, I'm out here in mile city out by mile marker 12 off the highway, found a ton of morels. And then I just go back home and, and don't even think twice about it. Yeah. You know, that, me announcing that spot certainly affects you more than it would affect me, but I'm going to, I'm going to get all the likes from it and I'm going to have the page that, you know, follow me and I'll show you where all the, all the morels are. Yeah. So I, suppose like, I suppose you pick up a few more followers if you're giving out very specific information. Yeah. So I could see, yeah, I guess I could see that. Uh, all right. Should we dive into insulting the meat? Yes. Um, okay. So what a hunter, so this is, uh, uh, what's the, the author's name again? Lee. Lee, that's right. Okay. So this is Lee speaking. When a hunter returns from a successful hunt or when meat is brought into camp, into a camp, one would think that this would be met with open glee and the hunter praised for his skill. I think you could certainly picture that coming back home with a, the bed of your truck filled with antlers or filled with a, a big, a big one that you shot. Yeah. Um, let me find my spot again. Uh, Quite the contrary, the people often display indifference or negativity, negativity at the news of a successful kill. Um, I was surprised to see the low-key way in which the hunters would break the news of their success. Um, when you come home empty-handed, you sleep and you say to yourself, oh, now, now this is he, this is, this is, this is now not Lee talking anymore, right? But this is. This is um, a tribe. This is a, this is a, a tribe member yeah. uh, describing what the feeling is like. Um, when you come home empty-handed, you sleep and you say to yourself, oh, what have I done? What's the matter uh, that I haven't killed? Then the next morning you get up without a word and you go out and you hunt again. This time you do kill something and you come home. Uh, you come home. I lost my spot. So. Okay. You come home and an elder kinsman may ask, well, what did you see today? I reply, I didn't see anything. I'm sitting there. So that's a good place to stop, I think. Yes. So in this case, the hunter does kill something and somebody comes up and asks him, well, uh, the elders asks him, "Did you kill anything?" And he says, "No." What do you didn't think? see anything. Yeah, didn't see didn't see anything. So anyway, that's worth noting. Yeah, we can read a little further. Okay, uh, well, it, it goes on to say something very similar. 
Um, I'm sitting there with my head in my hands, but my Sue comes back to to me because he is uh, Juhan. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean you haven't killed anything? Can you see that I'm dying of hunger? Well, there might be something out there. I just might have scratched its elbow. Then you say he, as he smiles, why don't we go out in the morning and have a look? And so we too and others will bring home the meat together the next day. So, I mean, it almost, it almost seems like they have to like browbeat it out. There's, there's a display of, well, you know, I might have gotten something who, and, and, and they, that's kind of the cue to, for them to say, let's go out and look for it. And, um, but there's, there's still a very high sense of humility and bashfulness and a reluctance to say, I got one. Right. Which is so different from what we would want to say today. Yeah. Today, the owner has it on Instagram before he even guts the damn thing out. Well, I, I even think about people selling on X waypoints. This, uh, you know, I've seen an animal here. I haven't even shot at it. I haven't, but I know that there's animals here. Go look for yourself kind of thing. That's completely the opposite of what's happening here where our, our society with social media is so in, in, enveloped or obsessed with where is the animal how big is the animal how many like how how big is he going to score on on a boone and crockett scale um it again kind of leans towards what is it that we're valuing versus what are the these individuals valuing yeah i don't think the the jew tisconsi would have would ever develop a scoring system well, I mean, even and, if they and, did, even if they did, like their version of the Boone and Crockett book or the Pope and Young book, it might have the stats like where the animal was shot and where what state or whatever it was shot in and what it scored, but they would definitely not have the hunter's name next to it, I don't think. Well, I, I also think they'd look at it as why would you do that? Uh, and I, I find myself asking myself that, but also other people and questioning their behavior when it comes to posting on social media or hunting, it's why, why would you do that? Why would you bother caring about how big the antlers are or how big the animal is? Like, why does that matter to you? And, and there there's to some extent, there's a conservation theme of let's take, let's, call the larger animals let's make sure that we're taking mature animals which i hear quite a bit but that's not what's being pushed right now people yeah. could care less yeah I, I i think people would have no problem shooting a two or three year old elk as long as it's scored above 380 <laughs> that'd be a bizarre elk it would be a very for sure, but that that's just I I just don't feel like that's the point. Uh, the age of the animal just isn't the point. It's how big is it, and and how what is he going to score for his antlers? Yeah, that seems to be anyone all anyone cares about. Um, well, I don't know. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of bragging that goes on even with animals that aren't trophy quality. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to think that I'm pretty convinced that whenever somebody puts a dead animal on a public account for everyone to see or a kill shot, they're doing it either to make money or to brag or both. When and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I hear other motivations like other people do it distastefully. So I'm just trying to show that you can do it tastefully. That's one, that one's not convincing to me. Um, I guess I could try to explain why, but it's, it's just, it's just so much more simple. It's more of an Occam's razor kind of an explanation to me to say they're doing it because they're bragging and want to draw attention to themselves or because they're trying to sell gear. Um, and here's a, here's a tribe. It's like a people where, where they're like, we're, we're not that we are not going to allow as a group. We're not going to allow people to brag over wildlife like that. You know, we're going to get into why in a bit, but um, there, there, there's another side of it too, in terms of the people receiving the, the either the story or the meat, um, the, the people that didn't go out and hunt this animal, they have a reason to be happy. They're the tribe, the the families, the community is going to have food. It, yeah, it's they divided up real evenly. Yeah, it's very interesting to me what people feel like they're getting out of praising, liking, commenting on a picture of an animal that someone shot that they'll never see anything from. They'll never, you know, they'll, they'll never see any of the meat. They'll, they'll never get to hold the antlers. They'll never like, it's not going to benefit them. Yeah. And so, you know, with, with my, with my interactions with, uh, with hunt quietly and, uh, specifically with the social media page, I've been able to post or put out a few um, articles that I found on our social media interactions as a society. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of research that's, that's leaning towards individuals who are using social media solely, only for the connection or to fill some sort of boredom need uh, are more likely to be depressed, more likely to have uh, high anxiety symptoms, and more likely to experience financial loss. Okay. Um, and so, you know, things like that really cause me to s step back and ponder, why are we liking this picture? Why, why do I like this picture? I, I will never see this bull again. I will never see this, this elk again, this picture again. Why does it matter to me? Um, something I wish people would do more of is focus more on individuals that are within their friend circle and share pictures that way. I, I remember it was a few months ago I, I had shot a, a fall turkey and I had sent you a picture of it. Yep. Um, and you in turn sent me a a much nicer bull elk that, that you had shot recently. 
And I, I wish interactions like that would happen more often with other people where they're not posting it online. They're saying, here's someone that I know that I am friends with that would be interested in, in seeing this and seeing that I was successful. And that was it. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very, I very rarely like, unless some, unless it's somebody I know well, I won't send them a picture unless they ask. Yeah. It's like, it's a gut check. Cause the thing is, I have I I have the same impulses as everybody else. But I'd be interested if you say that think the same. Like I want to brag about stuff I kill, just like everybody else. Though it's just that I see it as damaging. It's the only reason I don't. It's damaging to hunting the hunting opportunity because I think it breeds greed. It breeds competitiveness. It, it, in selfishness, hoarding of hunting opportunity comes from it, in my viewpoint. And privatization, leasing are consequences of it. I think of that that once you're using hunting as, as uh, the more that hunting becomes a popularity contest, the more people will try to hoard it from themselves for themselves so that they can win that contest does that make I, sense I, yeah and i think that that de desire I, I i certainly feel about feel that same desire um to brag you mean to brag to not be excited i remember the last elk that i shot i was extremely excited about it i it, it it's it's all but impossible not to be excited about that it's an exciting thing to 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 do um it's what do you do with with those emotions? What do you do with that feeling that really matters? And it's much of what you're saying is hunting's become a way for some people to elevate themselves above other people. Yeah. Instead of why would why would any of this matter in terms of your status? Right. And we've we've turned hunting into a status symbol. I am I am better, I am stronger, I am faster, look at me. Whereas the uh Juhoman are looking at anything that would even imply that you're above anyone else or elevate you above everyone else should be frowned upon immediately. Mm -hmm. Be dealt with immediately. Um as it will become apparent as we continue on with our readings. Yes. Should I take a section? Please do. Okay. So this is another story that's similar to the one we just read. Men are encouraged to hunt as well as they can, and the people are happy when meat is brought in. But the correct demeanor for the successful is modesty and understatement. A Jutiskanzi named Gongo said, Say that a man has been hunting. He must not come home and announce like a braggart, I've killed a big one in the bush. Um, oh, did we already read that part? Nope. Oh, okay. This is, it's very similar to the last part. He, yeah. must, he must first sit down in silence until I or someone else comes up to his fire and asks, what did you see today? He's, he replies quietly, ah, uh, I'm no good for the hunting. 
I saw nothing at all. Maybe just a tiny one. Um, then I smiled to myself because I know he has killed something big. So I guess what he's saying is when he goes like, well, maybe just a tiny one, that's his indication that he's got a great big one. Um, so that's just like another example of how the demeanor of a successful hunter when they come in. So then they move to that, from that to a typical butchering and carrying party scene. The theme of modesty is continued when the butchering and carrying party go out to fetch the kill the following day. Arriving at the site, the members of the carrying party loudly express their disappointment to the hunter. You mean you've dragged us all the way out here to make you, us cart home your pile of bones? Oh, if I had known it was going to be this thin, I wouldn't have come. People, to think I gave up a nice day in the shade for this? At home, we may be hungry, but at least we have nice, cool water to drink. These insults, the hunter must not act offended. He should respond with self-demeaning words. You're right. This one is not worth the effort. Let's just cook the liver for strength and leave the rest for the hyenas. It's not too late to hunt today. And even a dukier or a stenbuck would be better than this mess. Um, the party, of course, this is Lee talking, says, he says, has no intentions of abandoning the kill. The heavy joking and derision are directed toward one goal, the leveling of potentially arrogant behavior in the successful hunter. The Juhuan recognize the tendency towards arrogance in young men and take definitive steps to combat it. Um, I guess I'll keep reading. As a healer put it, when a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man, and he thinks of the rest of us as his servants or inferiors. We cannot accept this. We refuse, we refuse one who boasts, for someday his pride will make him kill somebody. So we always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way, we cool his heart and make him gentle. So I guess we'll stop there and chit-chat about that. First thing there is, unlike now, and this, so I understand why people post and brag stuff about dead stuff online. That's clear to me. I'm with you in not understanding why people behave like hunting celebrity sycophants online. Why when somebody posts something they shot, they get 10,000 likes and... 150 comments you know it's like i don't yeah I, do, I just don't share that impulse to congratulate somebody that i don't even know for for uh their hunting success like do you have any idea why what the motivation is there i mean from a psychology standpoint there's some group think behavior in there well everyone else has posted everyone else has liked it so i should like it um there yeah, like this, this organic thing where it's like the next time i shoot something i want the love so yeah. i'll put out some love yeah there's that 
there's the idea I am liking this thing to make sure it gets promoted because the more likes this picture gets, the the more the algorithm is going to be affected and I'll see more hunting uh, okay. on, on my social media instead of the stuff I don't want to see. There, there's that. Um, I don't, I, I think very much of what social media does and, and, and commenting and liking things provides a very, 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 very short hit of dopamine, hit of serotonin, hit of uh, a type of fake connection. You're, you're connect, you're trying to connect to the individual that posted that picture in a very poor way. But you you feel that that slight bump and okay I, I like that picture this so the, you know Cam Haynes saw this picture or saw that I liked this he's going to see this he's going to want to post more there that to me I've I've had thoughts like that before when I was much younger and, and more involved with social media I, I definitely had thoughts like that um, as I'm as I'm getting older I'm realizing how stupid that is mm -hmm. uh, and, and how short lasting that feeling is as well. Um, if I commented on something or I liked a picture that gave me, that gave me a good feeling for a second and now it's gone and now I'm on to the next picture. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that stands out to me in, in what you were reading was the hunter's response to the criticism Somewhere along the way, I, I feel like we've lost the ability to be criticized. Where if someone were to say that, that, that same thing to some of these larger hunting celebrities, they would be blocked instantly. Um, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't understand either. The, or the, I can't, I can't be criticized or I can't have someone with an opposing opinion talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it's like there's this whole package of things. If you want to be, I think that every anybody that's posting on a public social media account want hunting content wants. There's not a, there's very few of any, there's none of them and probably in the whole world that want their account, their followership to shrink, right? They right. want it to grow. And I doubt that there's any, there's any number of followers that could have where they would then go, oh, now I'm satisfied. They own, there's no upper limit on the number of followers that they would like to have. And what's going to what's going to increase their following more than anything is displaying maximum number of of pictures and amounts of hunting of content displaying prowess and hunting success. Like you look, if there's a few gals out there that have huge followings because without shooting a lot of stuff, and it's because they're attractive, but with yep. men. It's like a 9.99 R square if you were to regress how many followers they have on how much they kill. You well, know? it goes back to what Randy Newberg said on, on the podcast. 
that he is very aware of how much attention a, a post or a video gets when there's a kill shot on it versus just a conservation message. Right. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. We're, we're, I mean, it's just, it's alarming to me that, that there are so many people out there that are willing to be the audience for these people. Yeah. But, um, because of course these people exist. Of course, there's going to be a handful of people that are like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get famous." And instead of becoming good at acting, um, or making some kind of scientific breakthrough, or being a great visual artist, I'm gonna do it by demonstrating what a badass hunter I am. You know? And once you go down that route, that road, there's no limits. Like, you want to, if killing 10 animals and putting them on social media is good, killing 15 this year and putting them on social media is better. And, and the other side of that is, if I if I can't shoot that many animals, I will, I'll do it illegally. And there's a lot of examples. That. This guy from Muley Freak. Did you see that? that he's I, was, I was just about to mention that. And I, I was following that story as, as closely as I can. But yeah, that there, there are large social media influencers with very large followings with brand names attached to their, their name that have illegally killed animals in the for the sake of posting it online. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably like this small group of people we're talking about in and of themselves, their actions, I think, are trivial. The, the The damage they're doing is trivial, but they are the ones setting the example for the rest of the hunting community. And that is, I mean, they are just what, what they're displaying is what is being modeled to the next generation of hunters as success. Oh, yeah. I'm about to go in April. I'm going to the Pope and Young Banquet to speak. I can't believe they're having me there. It blows me away. But the keynote speaker is John Dudley. A guy that, how many animals did you figure he killed last year? I'd have to look. He was up there. Five, six elk, two moose, shitloads of deer and bears and everything else. You know, it's like, that is... Here's a here's the here's a bow hunting nonprofit that has no problem with that. That is what's modeled as like what we should be striving for. Even though if everybody that had an elk tag last year killed that many five elk, I think I calculated that we'd be have negative five million elk in the country. Oh yeah. If if everyone that had one elk tag was actually successful, it would it would be disastrous. Yeah, yeah. So Lee sums up this section, uh, and, and, a, and a, it's pretty eloquently put. I think he says, "Insulting the meat is." One of the central practices of the Jutiskanzi that serve to maintain egalitarianism. Even though some men are much better hunters than others, 
Their behavior is molded by the group to minimize the tendency towards self-praise and to channel their energies into socially beneficial activities. As a result, the existence of differences in hunting prowess does not lead to a system of big men in which a few talented individuals power over the others in terms of prestige. And that seems just about right to me. That's, that's what hunting TV and hunting social media have done. They've they have created the exact opposite of what this hunter-gatherer tribe is going for, where it, it, it is a mechanism for small groups of people to tower, have the ability to tower over others in terms of prestige, like he says. And so people go hard on that. They're like, oh, now I got a mechanism for using hunting to become famous. And it just turns it into this ugly competition and people killing for shitty reasons and erodes, in my view, or has severely eroded the integrity of, of hunting. Um, so I think that we do well to follow the example uh, of the Jutiskanzi, apparently the Eskimos, some of the Native American tribes, just do away with that garbage. It, it should be said that every time you're commenting on a on an Instagram post, you're you're liking a picture, you are getting praise to these individuals. You're you're doing exactly that. You are promoting a few above the rest and giving the power to a few above the rest. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're also modifying wildlife because the more are. the more you people that do that, follow them, like them, comment, the more companies are going to give them free shit and money, and then they're going to be like, oh, if I kill more, then I get more free shit, and more money. If I kill more, I get more likes. More, it's like this vicious circle. It, it's, a, it's a more vicious likes, circle. more sponsors. That ends with that ends with with hunting as we know it because eventually enough dollars get put into it where it becomes impossible to go hunting and there's already areas where um, like I can't afford twenty thousand dollars to go hunt an elk I can't afford um, I can't afford ten thousand dollars to go hunt a mule deer. But there's uh, there are increasingly number uh, an increasingly number of ranches and areas or, or or units that are charging that type of dollar amount to go hunt one animal. Yeah, the prowess that you get from shooting a big elk because of the attention you get from shooting a big mule deer. That's what it's turned into. I wonder how much they would have like. For a, for a premier hunt on a on like a premier property in the West for an elk for elk or mule deer, how much I, how much less they could charge if if like there was a stipulation when you hunt here you can't put the animal on social media. I bet I bet they couldn't 
I bet they couldn't make as much money. There's, there's, there's no way I'm going to go somewhere else then. I can't post it. It's interesting. So I, I was doing research on this because I wanted to. I wanted to know with some of the these hunters that are are specifically only hunting private land, how much money is actually being spent? And and from what I understand, some of these larger um, larger individuals are are having their sponsors or the the brand the brands that sponsor them these companies pay for these hunts which is resulting in in you know thirty five thousand dollars so there's a there's a, a specific place out in utah that says you have to buy an elk tag plus you if you're going to hunt an elk here you have to also buy a mule deer tag and and someone ran the numbers on that and it, it came out to like 35 grand to hunt a trophy elk and a trophy mule deer at this specific ranch in Utah. And it would be, there'd be no way that the, this influencer could hunt the, those animals if they didn't have a brand to pay for it. And there's no way that that brand would pay for it if they couldn't post a picture about it with, you know, hashtag Sitka next to oh, it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Many pictures with hashtags Sitka next to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, that. Yeah, that's just why. That's why we're at where we're at. That's why hunting opportunities becoming highly commodified, and we're becoming more and more like Europe every year, is because shit like that. But it's that, and I, I think what's happening is almost worse than what's happened than, than Europe because. We're being told as long as we keep hammering, we'll be we'll be able to get the get a big one just like this. But it, that's not true. It's yeah. It says the guy that that every elk he gets would cost you fifteen grand or more to shoot. Yeah, it's it's at least you know with 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 the European style, it's up front. It's if you have the money, you can go you can go shoot this. Right. Seeing right. here, uh, yeah. You don't have to wonder if they're yeah. doing, it, doing it by their wits or or um because they are just like a badass mountain hunter. No, they're definitely that's not it. It's because there's the only place you can do it is places you pay. Right. And, and so it, it almost seems like it's worse than the European model. It's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause you can like kind of act like you're on private on public land somewhere here. But it's 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 a it's a farce, it's a lie, it's it's a huge cover-up because as soon as these people get called out, they get very upset um, and th that they're being called out for for hunt for paying this much amount of money to go hunt to go hunt this elk to on on this type of ranch. They get very upset about it. Yeah. Oh yeah. No one's more sensitive than a hunting influencer, and that's because they have to maintain their hero status. Every, like they, everything they're trying to do revolves around that. Like if they don't, if they're not considered like an authority and a man, a person of great integrity in hunting, then they they lose revenue. When, and there's actually quite a bit of like thought and like psychology that goes into it. Um, to with with this branding and with this. 
the images that get put out, it's, they, they, refer, they refer to it as user-generated content. Um, I, I, this was in an article that I found that was posted, it's posted on uh, the Hunt Quietly website if anyone wants to, or not the website, the, the Instagram page. You can go find it. Um, but the, the amount of user-generated content is definitely being manipulated. If you're going to, if you're going to advertise with social media, you have to label it as advertisement. You have to say, this is a paid promotion. This is, I, I am being paid to do this. This is a commercial, whatever. Um, unless it's user generated content. So if it's a picture of Cam Haynes with a Hoyt bow and you tag Hoyt to it, you don't have to label that as advertisement. And there's there's real studies that that. So when when would you, if it was Hoyt themselves, if it was Hoyt themselves, yeah, put it, putting out promotion, something that's not user generated content. So that's something that's not necessarily just the the influencer going throughout their day to day, just and they just happen to be wearing all Sidka from head okay. to toe. Um. So it's there's real research and and data being put out there saying that the an individual's ability to cope and reason and say that's just a commercial, I'm not going to pay much attention to it, goes down dramatically, no, to a noticeable level where there it's harder to say no to user generated content because it just looks cool, mm -hmm. right? I, you see the the Hoyt bow that's sixteen hundred dollars, and you're like, man, I really want that. Yeah, he, he made a hundred yard shot with that bow. I need that bow to be able to make a hundred yard shot. Yeah, um, yeah. And I want those hunting boots. So he he was able to walk fifteen miles into the backcountry and carry an elk on his back. I need those hunting boots too. Yeah. Um, and, and because they've tagged those companies, you, all you have to do is hit the picture and all these companies pop up with the products. And it's, it's a, you can buy that product with a, with a quick click of a button. Um, it is incredibly difficult to be able to cope and, and, and reason with yourself as to why you don't need that product. Yeah, I can see. I can see. Yeah. It becomes mentally becomes associated with that person's success with success in general it's i will not be as successful if i do not get this product yeah and and the companies absolutely gear their advertisement towards that message you will not be as successful without this product mm -hmm. yeah a lot of what you know we're trying to do you and i and a few others is give people alternatives alternative ways of getting the equipment and supplies and um, camping gear etc weapons that they need to be a hunter that doesn't feed into that bs you know which is a slow turned out to be a slow moving train we got a few companies but i hope we get to to a point where we find start finding more we found a good one yesterday I, I yeah we sure did boss anybody listening to this boss shotgun shells is a good company that does not yeah do this subliminal user generated content advertising well matt i think this was a good conversation thank you very much should we wrap it up anything more to say um wrap it up if if 
anyone remembers one thing from this podcast or from today's episode, it would be stop liking all these photos, stop commenting on it. You're just feeding into elevating one above the many. Yeah, I agree. And challenge yourself to be humble. You know, prove to yourself that you hunt for the right reasons by taking it offline. All right. 